Hello, everyone. How are you this morning? Well, it, is, uh, it really is a pleasure to be with you. I was telling Brother Wade in the lobby that um, it really does start to feel like our home away from home a little bit. We get to come and visit with our family here in Westerville every now and then. So I come bearing greetings from the church, your brothers and sisters in Newark, Ohio, which is where uh, me and my family are from. I currently serve at a church out there. Uh, so it is really is a, a really great pleasure to be with you, and uh, you are always so great to us and very welcoming and very hospitable, so we thank you for that, and, and we really do appreciate you. So um, without further ado, let's, uh, let's take out our Bibles and uh, let's get right into the Word. Uh, we're going to continue in the, se- the series that you have been in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, and chapter 9 this morning. Uh, and uh, we will read through our section of Scripture today, which will be Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. Uh, and if you would stand with me as we read God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop and sprinkled blood, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the name, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the word of God. You may be seated. Let me pray over the word. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would Use it as you have promised us that you would, as a two-edged sword to pierce our hearts. Give us ears to hear and give me words to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves, we find ourselves here in the middle of this book of Hebrews. um, And the writer of Hebrews is, uh, he's giving us uh, some very detailed instructions. He's he's walking us through these differences, he's unpacking some of these differences between the old covenant and the new covenant and the differences between these two covenants. Uh, And as we know, the audience that he's speaking to, the people that he's given these instructions to, they obviously have some sort of frame of reference for what he's talking about with the Old Old Testament, the old covenant. He's speaking to a people who are familiar, very familiar with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, as you would, the Torah, the law, all of these things, they would be very familiar with all the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the, the workings of the temple. He's, he's giving them this contrast to He's giving this contrast to a people who is familiar with what he's talking about. And what I believe that, that part of what God is doing through this book is not 
to simply show the difference between the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant. He's not just, he's not just contrasting the two, uh, although that certainly happens here. That is definitely taking place. He is contrasting the two. I believe that more than anything, God wants us to not only see the differences between the Old, the old Covenant and the New Covenant, but more importantly, God is giving us a lesson in what we like to call hermeneutics. I didn't drive all the way over here from Newark to barrage you with theological terminology. That's not what I'm doing here. But, but I, I think this is what God is doing here. So what do I mean by that? What do I mean by God is giving us a lesson in hermeneutics? A hermeneutic is simply a tool or a method that is used to interpret something. That's all that we're talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a way of looking at something, and it, it's something that would help you interpret what it is that you're looking at. How do you make sense of what you're looking at? What is the tool that you're using or the method that you're using to look at something and make sense of it? That's what, that's what a hermeneutic is. And I believe that that's what God is doing in the book of Hebrews, in, in the book of Hebrews, 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 and it's specifically in this portion of this text. So if we think about that, okay, what is our hermeneutic? What is the lens that we use? What is our method when we look at the Bible, think about it for yourself. When we look at the Bible, what is our lens that we typically look at Scripture through? I think that it's very easy for us and very common for us in the church to use ourselves as our primary hermeneutic for the Bible, our primary lens with which we're looking at the Bible through. We tend to look at ourselves. We, look, we tend to look at what does this Scripture mean to me? How does this apply to me how do I fit into this? And that's not always wrong. Scripture for sure does have implications for us. It does speak to us. It does, it does have ramifications for our lives, certainly, or else we wouldn't be here. That's not the case. But, but what is our primary lens that we're looking at the Scriptures through? Are we looking at it primarily from our, stand, our vision, our own personal standpoint? See, the Bible is primarily autobiographical. The Bible is primarily autobiographical. The Bible is God writing about himself. When you really boil it down, that's what's happening in the Bible. God is writing about himself. The Bible is written for us, but the Bible is not written about us. The Bible is God's story of creation of the fall, of redemption, of consummation. Those are themes that run throughout all of the Bible. With Jesus as the protagonist, with Jesus as the main character, with Jesus as the hero of the story. And this is what the, Hebrew, this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. He's trying to give us this lens. He's, try, he's using this lens and he's trying to help us see the Bible and see God and see God's written word through this lens, through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Christ. He's saying Jesus is the key to all of Scripture. Jesus is the decoder pin. Ever seen the movie Christmas Story? Have you seen that movie? You're about to see it if you haven't. This is going to be on every channel here in about two weeks. 
So if you've never seen the movie The Christmas Story, the, 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 young, the young boy in the Ralphie in the movie, he, he gets this uh, little decoder pen, and it's this little, uh, it's a little pen that has these numbers and all these symbols on it, and he, he, goes, and he, he goes and he sits by the radio because this, this program that he listens to, Little Orphan Annie, I think it was called, uh, and they were going to give out this secret message to people who, if you had this decoder pen, you were going to be able to decipher what the secret message was. And so he goes and he's sitting there and he's got his decoder pen and they're, they're reading off the thing and he's, he's writing them down. And he gets to the end and it was just like, it was a dumb advertisement, right? Drink more Ovaltine, I think is what it said. And he was all hyped up about it. But, but if he didn't have that decoder pen, he wouldn't have been able to find out what the message was. And that's the point. Without that Without that tool to help him interpret the message, he would have not known what the message was intended for. And this is what Jesus does for us, in a sense. Jesus unlocks the scriptures for us. He he unlocks the the Old Testament for us. He, He helps us to see with proper context what the intentions of the Old Covenant was. Jesus is the lens. Jesus is the proper human hermeneutic. Jesus is the point of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the central figure, not us. So as we look back to our text, we begin to see how this takes shape. We begin to see this, this become more obvious to us. In verse 15, he says, Therefore he, who? Christ. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, all right? So there's a lot there, right? So obviously there's a therefore, and we always have to ask that question, right? What is the therefore, therefore? So why is he saying therefore? Well, he had just got done talking about some more specifications, as our brother Taylor explained to us last week, of of the blood and what the blood represents and how the blood ushers in the the new covenant, and that's how it's sealed, and that's how we are forgiven, and that's where, that's what, that is the, the price for sin, so therefore, because of that, Christ, the one who shed the, his blood for us, he is the mediator of a new covenant now, so that those who are called may receive, and these are the three words that I want to, to focus on today, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that, render, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay? So already we see that we have to have Christ as our lens or we're going we're gonna to miss the point. We're going to totally miss what's happening here. If we don't have Christ as our primary lens here, if we don't have Christ as our primary tool of interpretation, we're going to totally miss what the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to explain to us here. And this is what I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about. I'm going to talk about these three words. Promised, eternal, and inheritance. These three words help us to see that Christ is the point of not only this part of Scripture, but he is the point of all of Scripture. So let's look at that first word, promised. A promise looks forward to something greater, right? That's the whole point of a promise. What makes a promise good is not the promise itself. The promise in and of itself has no value if there is no fulfillment of that promise. 
The promise by its very necessity is pointing to something at the end of it, right? An engagement without a wedding is pointless, right? In fact, it's worse than pointless. It's a, it's a tragedy, right? If there's an engagement but there's no wedding, if there's a promise but there's no fulfillment of that promise, then, then that's not good. So, so the engagement itself is not the point. The promise itself is not the point. My dad used to tell me when I was, my, when I was young, and Taylor can probably attest to this, when I was younger, I was a little feistier, and I would play, play basketball, and I would like, run my mouth a little bit, and I would talk a little bit of trash on the court, and I thought I was, it was, it was a long time ago, <laughs> all right? It's a long time ago. The Lord is sanctifying me. Not that way as much anymore. But my dad used to tell me, he said, he would say, Andrew, <laughs> he would say, don't let your mouth write checks that your body can't cash. <laughs> right? He would say, don't let your mouth write checks that your body can't cash. And what is he saying there? He's saying, don't make promises that you're unable to deliver on. Right? Don't, don't get yourself into a situa- situation where your mouth gets you in trouble because you can't back up what you're talking about. Don't make promises that you can't deliver on. His point was that a promise is only as strong as the one who makes it. A promise is only as strong as the person or the entity making the promise. So what promise are we talking about? Well, we can trace this promise that we're talking about in verse 15. We trace this promise all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis 3, 15, we see the seeds of this promise being, being delivered, In the midst of sin, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of the fall, God plants the seeds of this promise to his people, right? He's he's promising them that he's going to send rescue. He's promising them that he's going to send someone to crush the head of the enemy and deliver them. This is the seeds of this very promise that we're talking about in, in verse 15. We see this promise then continue on and grow in in Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham through his covenant with him that he's going to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham and through Abraham's offspring. We see this promise uh, begin to take shape in the form of the law that's given to Moses. This promise takes shape now, right? But this, but this new, this old, this covenant promise that's given to Moses to God's people through the law This law was never meant to be the the point. This law was never meant to be the focus. The law was never meant to be our source for righteousness. The law was never meant to be our source for communion with God. The law was always, always pointing to Christ as the greater reality. The law was pointing ahead to Christ and saying Christ is the greater reality. There is a greater reality coming. These things, as Colossians 2 says, these things are shadows of things to come of which Christ is the substance. These things were never intended to be the fullness. The promise was never meant to be the point. It was always meant to be a placeholder. It was always meant to symbolize that the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that he would make for all of mankind. A promise is only as strong as the one who makes it. God's promises are strong because God is strong. 
God's promises come true because God is truth. God's promises are always faithful and can be relied upon because God is always faithful and can be relied upon. This is why God uses the example of a will here in this text, right? In verse 16, for where a will is involved, right? And this is, this is painting the picture of sort of a last will and testament. Right? You, would go to the, you would go to a lawyer and, and you, would, you would make up a will and you would say, this is what I want to happen with all of my belongings after I die. That's what he's talking about here. For, for where a will is involved, the death excuse me, of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Right? So we talked about what, what a will is, right? A will is essentially a promise of an inheritance. That's what a will is. This is what God is comparing this to. He's saying this is like a will. A will is when you make a promise with your descendants of their inheritance. You're making that promise to them. And God, and God is saying, and that promise only takes effect when? When you die. You, don't, you, you get the promise after you die. And this is what God is saying here. He's saying that this promise took effect when Christ died. This is when this promise took effect. This is when this will came into action. God has made a promise to us. And much like a last will and a testament, we don't experience the fullness of that promise until the death of the one who made it. And the one who made it is personified in Christ. Therefore, Christ's death is the culmination of the promise given to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to us. Christ is the fulfillment. This is why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in who? Christ. They find their yes in him. All the promises are finding their yes where? In Christ. That's where. Christ is the point. Because Jesus is the substance and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, then everything that comes along with that is as secure in eternity as Jesus himself. Let me read that again. Because Jesus is the substance and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, then everything that comes along with those promises and that fulfillment is as secure in eternity as Jesus Christ himself. So that brings us to our next word, right? Eternal. Notice the repetition of this word in this text. There's a repetition of this word. In verse 12, it says, He secured our eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. And then again in verse 15, it says that our promised inheritance is also what? It's eternal. Our redemption is eternal, and our inheritance is eternal. Charles Spurgeon, and when he's referencing this verse, he says this. He says, when you come to deal with Christ, you have to do with eternal things. There is nothing temporary about him or about his work. There is nothing temporary about Christ. Christ has always existed. He will always exist. 
And there is nothing temporary about his work. There is no expiration date. His worth, his work, his worth is eternal. Eternal. All right? So Jesus is the substance of the promise of God. God promises peace. Where do we find peace? In Jesus. It's all right to speak up. God promised forgiveness. Where do we find it? In Jesus. God promised reconciliation. Where do we find it? God promised redemption. Where do we find it? This is where we get that. Hebrews is where we get that, right? The Sunday school answer, Jesus is the answer to every question. That's literally what's happening here in Hebrews. He's saying Jesus is the answer to every question. Everything is found in Christ. Our redemption is found in him, and it's eternal. And then our inheritance is now found in him because it was promised, and he is the fulfillment of all the promises, so now our inheritance is eternal. There's no expiration. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change. So if Jesus doesn't change, then our inheritance doesn't change. It's as solid as he is. So if Jesus doesn't change, our redemption doesn't change, our forgiveness doesn't change, our reconciliation doesn't change, it's secure in him. He is the source of it. That's what it means to be hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God. That's what he's talking about. You are hidden with Christ. You are with Christ, and you are hidden in God with Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 2 when he says, It is no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. We are unified with him. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. When we believe, when, when, we, when we are in, in him, when we have faith in him, we are in him. So what is this inheritance then? Well, if the substance and the fulfillment of the promise is Christ, and Christ is the one who makes the fulfillment eternal, then we have to look no further than to find the essence of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? Christ is our inheritance. Christ is the inheritance. We get him. That's what we get for eternity. What do we receive as a result of Christ's redeeming and justifying work on our behalf? We receive Christ. We get him. His work and his mediation, right, his, his stepping in, as just like we sung just now, Jesus steps in and he mediates for us on our behalf. There is only one mediator standing between God and man. That's it. There is no other source of mediation. There is no other way to God. That's it. Jesus is the way. And this is what Hebrews is telling us. If you want God, you got to go through Jesus. And not only do you get God, you get Jesus. You get the whole thing. You get the whole inheritance. Everything that Jesus has, we now have, except for the credit. He gets the credit. We are now united to the very fulfillment of every promise of God. 
We are now forever united with the one who meets all of the demands of God's holiness forever. Forever. The point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make is that Christ is the point. Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the better redemption. He is our mediator. He is our substitute. He is our example. He is our forgiveness. Christ is all of those things. It's all found in him. We don't look anywhere else. We don't look within ourselves. We don't look to the world around us. We look to him for all of those things. He is the source. Christ is the source. Ad fontes, right? Back to the sources. That was the cry of the reformers. Back to the sources. Back to the, what were they saying, right? They were saying, get, we got to get back to Christ. Back to Christ. Back to the source. We don't look anywhere else. We don't look to our works. We don't work, look to our performance. We don't look to our actions. We don't look to our attitude or our emotions. We don't look to our family. We don't look to our economy or our country. We don't look anywhere else for our source of peace or righteousness or hope or love or any of those things. Where do we go? We go to where Hebrews tells us to go, to Christ. He is the source. Our inheritance is him. And we get him forever. It's eternal. It's been promised. And God fulfills his promises. Always. And like we said, and when we get him, we get everything that is due him. Everything that he deserves, we now get, except for the credit. He gets the praise. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. And we get him. This is the very essence, this is the very core of the gospel. This is right at the very core of the gospel that we claim, that we, hold, that we uphold, that we behold, that we preach. This is right at the very essence of it. Christ is all and in all. All things are for him and through him. He is above all things. All things were made through him and by him and for him. He is preeminent. He is above all things. He is the ruler. He is the king. He is the king and the priest. Like Melchizedek, that's what he's saying. In the, in the Old Testament, you couldn't be both. You could either be the king or you could be the priest. You can't be both. And Jesus is like, I'm both. I'm the king and the priest. I rule over you and I get you to God. I mediate before you on God and I rule over you and I reign over you and all of creation. I am both. I am the better priest and king. Where we are weak, he is strong. In fact, we are encouraged to be weak so that he can be stronger in our weakness. This is what Paul is talking about. When I am weak, I am strong. When I am weak, I am strong. Jesus isn't looking at you and expecting you to, to, to look to yourself for righteousness, for strength. Ephesians 6 says, be strong in what? In the Lord. Not in yourself, in the strength of his might, not in the strength of your own might. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't going to share this, but I think I will. I, I was having a conversation earlier this week with some people, and these people, um, I love them, and, but let's just say that they, they have a bad hermeneutic. We'll just say that. They call themselves Yahweh believers. 
And essentially what they believe is that uh, they believe that we, there is no distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That what Jesus did in his role simply was to enable us to then uh, follow the Old Testament laws. So they still try to follow all of those Old Testament laws. And at the end of the day, the element that they're eliminating from the equation is the element of faith. The element that they're, that they're removing from the equation is the most central element of the Christian faith. And that is what I just said. Faith. That's why we call it the Christian faith. That is what we have. Faith in itself, at its essence, is trust. It's trust in Christ. It's trust that Christ is the better everything. That's what we say when we, when, we are, when we are having faith in God, which is a gift, like Ephesians 2 tells us, God gives us this gift of faith, and we are now able to see Christ as he truly is, as the exemplar, as the better, as the ruler, as the king, as the priest, as our only, only source of righteousness, as the only one who stands between us and God and mediates on our behalf. That's what faith gives us. It gives us eyes to see that reality. It gives us eyes to see that we have to put our trust only and exclusively in Christ. Now, we may not walk around and and function in that way and say, yes, we have to go back to the Old Testament laws and we have to eat no shellfish and we have to eat no pork, which I'm out on that one right out of the gate. We have to, you know, we have to go back and do all these things and keep all the festivals. Like, we don't, we don't, most of us don't struggle with that, right? That's not our struggle most of the time. But, but we still struggle with the same heart issue. We still struggle with the same heart issue of looking at Christ as the one who, who sort of finishes where we leave off. Don't we? It's more subtle in our lives. We, we say, okay, I'm going to go as far as I can, and then Christ, I'll have you come in, and I'll have you finish it and pick up the slack for me. I'll go 50, and you go the other 50, and that'll get the job done. That's essentially what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. They're, they say that Christ enables us to, to go back and to, to do the Old Testament laws so that we can become righteous, and in the areas that we don't live up to it, Jesus then comes in, and he fills in the gaps. We're not as blatant about it, but we, st- we struggle with the same thing. We struggle with the very same issue. We look at our own lives, and we look at our performance, and we look at how we live, and we look at our good works and our good deeds, and we think, yeah, God, mu- God must be pretty pleased with me because of all of those things. Why is God pleased with us? Because of Christ. That's why. That's why God is pleased with us, because of Christ, because of his work on our behalf. And because that has happened now, that is making us into a vessel that is then becoming more pleasing to God and being sanctified by him, not by us, by his spirit, not by our works. His spirit is what sanctifies us. Does he have good works for us to do? Absolutely. Ephesians 2 is not a lying when it says that. God has laid out good works for us to do before we were even born. So yes, we have good works to do. That doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and sit on the couch and say, 
It's all Christ. I'm just going to sit here and let him do all the work. That's not what we're preaching. What we're saying is that Christ is our only source of hope, our only source of peace, our only source of righteousness, our only source of forgiveness. If we're trying to circumvent that, however subtly it manifests itself, we have missed the mark. We are off track. We need to repent. Praise God that the new covenant is not just a new list of rules for us to follow in order to earn God's favor. He says, no, you have my favor in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are hidden with him in me. So in closing, I'd like us to to open up our Bibles. I'd like to just read Ephesians 1 together as we close. And I want us to read this passage together through the lens of Christ this morning. Let's, let's read what this has to say through this lens. Let's use our new hermeneutic tool that we've learned this morning. And let's, let's read this text in light of what we've said, that Christ is the point, that Christ is what makes it possible. Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen, church. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your glorious grace that you display to us through the giving of yourself to us. You humbled yourself. You took on flesh. And you entered into our world to serve and not to be served. To to lower yourself even to the point of death on a cross so that we might know Father, I pray that these words, your words this morning, would ring in our hearts and they would fill us with hope and they would fill us with joy and they would fill us with the good news of your gospel, that you would convict us of our sin and you would lead us into repentance for our joy and for your glory. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.